Morning. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes on our worship order. It says three minutes for pastoral introduction because they've learned that when we stand up here, we have to feel connected to you. So we talk about meaningless things until we get to the passage. So that three minutes is not meaningless, but I just want to tell you what we're going to do today. It's a little bit different. As you can see, we're sitting on high tops, I don't know, stool, I don't know what they're called, chairs that are high. Um, and there's a table in front of us. I'm going to tell you how this came about, and then I'm going to ask you to um, listen with grace and mercy instead of with uh, pointing fingers and accusing eyes. I'm not saying that that's what you normally do, but they warn you in seminary when you're preparing to be a preacher to not share your failures or sin with people because they will remember your sin and not see what God has done. So Doug and I are going to share with you some things, a couple of things that we're, I don't know, I can't speak for Doug, but I know that this is the, this is the one thing that I have the most regret and probably fight off shame the most about uh, in almost all of my life. So uh, let me tell you how this came about first. Um, there, we, have a, we have a group of people that pray here. I mean, you all pray, but we have a group of people that are intercessory prayer people, people that, that specifically pray for God's work to be done in this church and um, looking for God's strategy and God's ideas and God's desires. And one person meets with me on a pretty regular basis to give me prayer cover as the primary communicator uh, at Community Reformed Church and as the lead pastor, listening to where I think the Lord is leading us, confirming or challenging that. It's just been, a, I've never had that in my, in my ministry. I had someone who specifically, I mean, every other week meets with me to pray and to listen. And what this person has done is they've learned that if, if, uh, if, if I talk and then pause, if they don't say anything, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about what, you know, kickoff and, and this year, you know, there's all this stress that goes into starting a new ministry year. And she was asking about preaching in speci specifically, and she knows that I always have strategy. There's always more going on and where, where things are headed because the scripture always leads us to something else. But I got this illustration, this idea. I think I'd watched a YouTube video, one of those, uh, they call it clickbait, one of those things that said, you would never believe this happened if it, if it weren't caught on camera. And I start watching this, this thing on sinkholes. You guys know what a sinkhole is? Um, remember the Corvette Museum in Cle Cleveland? Dude, I wept. Huh? Where is it? Bowling Green. Bowling, Bowling Green? Green? Okay. Um, the Corvette Museum, they built it. It's beautiful and all this and all these beautiful cars, these Corvettes. And something happened. There was erosion underneath the foundation and underneath the floor and all that kind of stuff. Maybe there was a little subterranean creek down there. I don't know. But something, something started to erode below it. And on video, they caught all of these beautiful collector's item Corvettes tumbling into the, in, into the subterranean some of them completely destroyed. I don't remember what, how much damage there was, but I said, that's kind of what preaching is. What? Um, our job as preachers is to, and, and I tell you this sometimes, like I say, I'm gonna, this is going to be one of those times when I poke at you, and if it hurts, it tells you something's wrong. So I see it as, as, as this idea that it, everything might look good on the surface for all of us, but if it's not, if there's nothing below it, it's going to lead us to destruction. So I poke and send down little seismic things or, or dig a little bit and dig a little bit. And we're, I just want to see how deep you can go before it falls apart. And if it doesn't fall apart, if the idea is true, it stands up to testing. 
So then we kind of move from there into, into um, a new illustration that we'll talk about in a minute about this particular message. Normally on Sunday mornings uh, for kickoff, we start launch a new series of what's going to take place in the next several weeks. We're not doing that today. We're talking about what we've been doing the last five years and what God is leading us toward. We're going to poke and we're going to show you how we've built some things on sinkholes that we didn't know were sinkholes and how it wasn't trustworthy and what what we're not as find a church, out, as, as individuals. As individuals, how, not, not, we're not speaking for the church. We're going we're gonna to share have, with you personally, because thank you. There's always the big, and it's more of a conversation. Every time we've had this conversation in preparation for this, it's, it's landed in the same spot, but it's gotten there in a different way. So you're going you're gonna to watch what happens around the staff on occasion, but you're also going to see um, how we believe the scriptures aren't just for the big stuff. You know, Hitler thought what he was doing was right. Um, Mussolini, apartheid in South Africa. We get the big ones, but we like to look at and accuse instead of look and see where sometimes we build on things that aren't trustworthy, and sometimes we build our lives on ourself, and that's not trustworthy. That's what we're going to talk to you about. But I want to ask you again, I'll pray, and then we'll start, but ask you to, we're going to say some things that we're not proud of. We're going to say some things that you're not going to want to know about us. But we're doing that for your benefit, not for ours. There's no glory in this for us. Um, but we're going to ask you to remember that these things have been confessed. They've been repented of. Forgiveness has been sought. Forgiveness has been given. And we've been delivered from them. The only reason we're bringing them back up is not to say that the Lord hasn't done it, but to show you from our own experiences how Scripture is trustworthy and we're not. So let me pray and we'll get started. Almighty God, we bless you, we thank you, and I'm asking for courage personally. I don't want to do this again. Um, the accuser is working overtime, reminding me that if you keep telling people this stuff, that's all they're going to remember. Uh, Lord, I want people to like me, I want people to respect me, but most of all, Lord, when it comes down to it, I want your truth to be proclaimed. So if you are willing to use what we have to say for the benefit of others, then Lord, this is our this is that we're offering ourselves as sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship. We pray that as a result of that, people will be able to know your will, your good, perfect, and pleasing will. Join us. Be blessed by it. Give us all eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, if there's something that Doug and I have planned to say that you don't want to say, we don't want to say it. But if there's something you want said, make it clear that it's Holy Spirit telling us, and we will speak your words to your people this day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Amen. So after this conversation about sinkholes, I go into Doug's office because we're planning to do this together. We normally um, preach this one together. And uh, I, I tell him about the sinkhole thing. And I say, you know, it reminds me of this illustration. Anyone here, anyone here scuba, scuba diver? Not a rhetorical question. Is there anybody here who's a certified scuba diver? There's a few. Okay, good, good. Minor, I'm not. I'm not a scuba diver. I'm too buoyant. Um, <laughs> But I have some, I have a, uh, there are four brothers that I know. They're all adults. They're in their 30s and 40s now. Um, they're adventurers. I mean, they are, they're pilots. They're skydivers. They're uh, windsurfers and kite surfers or kite or whatever. They, and, and, and they're scuba divers. They do it all. I mean, they just live on adrenaline. Um, and one guy was telling me, one of these brothers was telling me one day about uh, his certification. And it doesn't matter if you're in Barbados and it's just that quick thing that, so you can go snorkeling a little bit. It doesn't matter if you're trying to be an instructor. There's one thing that every instructor will tell you that sometimes you get underwater, you get below the, su the surface, and there's an algae bloom or something like that. In fact, someone grabbed me after the last service and told me about being disoriented in the water because it was just green. He couldn't see his hand in front of his face. Um, but they, they tell you, there are times when you'll be neutrally buoyant, and you'll think you're going up and you're going down. 
You think you're going east, but you're actually going north. There are times when you are scuba diving and you can, every, you, your body tells you one thing and it might lead you to death. And they say, here's what happens. Here's what you do. The one thing that you know is always right. They will always point you in, 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 the, south, in the direction of safety. The bubbles are always right. Even if they're falling to the floor of the ocean, follow them because the bubbles are always right. And so I'm telling Doug about this. I'm like, there's this passage that, and I want to talk about this and, and, you know, follow the bubbles. And he goes, well, I don't know that one, but I know. Dude, I I got something similar. Like when you're a pastor, you get this like stable of of sermon illustrations, right? I've got one. I've got one. Um, This is better. It is. (laughs) Mine actually goes back to a historical event. um, And it's not that it was invented then, but um, it was this famous moment where this was brought into light. It's something pilots know. They talk about. They teach it at flight school. You you have to be aware of it. Um, And the historical event that I'm talking about was back in 1999. Um, A famous person died in July, July 16, 1999. Famous mostly because of who his father was. Uh, on July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. died. Do you remember how he died? He crashed in a plane. He and his wife and a friend were flying back from a wedding, and they were over the Atlantic Ocean. It was night, and you could fly at night, but he wasn't certified for instrument flying. He had to see visually, so he had to be able to track the lights on the ground And uh, either a cloud bank, something came in, he couldn't see anymore. And what happens, and this this is something they teach in flight school, if you're not instrument certified, you need to be able to see. When you lose sight, when you cannot trust, when you can't, you can't gauge where you are anymore by your eyes, you have 178 seconds between loss of sight and death. Because... When you're flying, you have a tendency to want to trust how you feel, right? I mean, you can see, when you can see, it's great. When you're flying something you can't see, you, you're going to go with your instincts. Okay, so I'm flying along. I feel like I'm level. And you're flying along. And next thing you know, you look down at your altimeter. You look down at your, your, uh, your airspeed. And the airspeed is skyrocketing. Your altimeter is plummeting. And you're like, oh, my goodness. I don't feel like I'm going down. But this says I'm going down. So you go like this. And... You enter something called a graveyard spiral. They have names for these things. <laughs> They're pleasant. It's ple- oh, my goodness. And what happens is, is when you're flying, because of the way G-forces work, you, you, can be, you can be zooming along. You lose your sight. You lose your ability to understand where you're at. You don't trust your instruments. And suddenly, you begin to do this. And you see everything on your... Suddenly, you look at your instruments. You're speeding up, and you're going down. So you rank it, you rank it up, and phew, there you go. 178 seconds, and you're gone. It's called spatial disorientation. That's what killed three people on July 16, 1999. Spatial disorientation, because he was not certified to fly by instruments. He didn't know what it was like. He couldn't make himself trust his instruments for flying. Those, those nice little things that sit on the dash and tell you exactly what's actually happening. Instead, he trusted his own feeling. If you don't think that can happen, you need to go online. You need to find this amazing video. You don't think you wouldn't know. You, you, you think. I mean, everybody, uh, people sitting in here probably don't know how to, you know, haven't flown an airplane, don't know what this is like. You think, oh, I'd be able to tell. I'd be, I sit on a passenger airline. I'm like, oh, I think we're going up. Yeah, we're going up. Oh, no, no, we're descending. We're, we're beginning our descent. When those G-forces are working and you're flying by your instincts, you, 
you can't trust it. You can't. Your instincts are going to be wrong. I watched a guy on YouTube do a barrel roll while pouring a cup of coffee. And the liquid didn't do nothing crazy. It went right into that jam, that cup, just like if he was sitting on the ground. You can't trust your eye. You can't trust how you feel. You can't trust your perceptions. You think you're doing what's right. And next thing you know, you're dead. That's my sermon illustration. And those, and those are illustrations. So, so what? Um, there's a passage in Proverbs that says this. I'll read this one, then I'm going to read one from Romans because it goes with the story I'm going to tell you. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Now, if you look at these illustrations, it seems right. You think you're swimming up, but you're actually swimming down. You think you're swimming east, but you're actually swimming north. Uh, you think that the G-forces are telling you that down is, is sideways. Uh, and so you, 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 you feel it and you know it and it's, it's real, but it, your, yourself, your, your trustworthiness is lying to you. So here's another passage. We just went through the book of Romans. Um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And then Romans chapter 1 says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became like fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, none of us are probably bowing down in our homes to wooden statues of birds and reptiles and animals, but... Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desire, or to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. I was in high school. I became a Christian in 1985. I was after between my freshman and sophomore year of, of high school. I was at a Young Life camp. And I got to know, or I met Jesus then, is the way I put it. And then a year later, I started to get to know him. And boy, did I, 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 was, I was, in my own head, I was on fire. And I was actually in that spot where I was about as self-righteous as they came. Um, there were some things that God did and some, some opportunities he gave me. And there was some fruit from, from sharing my faith with other people. Uh, but when it came to making bold statements about how faithful I was going to be, I was quick to say yes, kind of like Peter hopping out of the boat and walking on the water and then sinking like a rock. Um, we were, it was the last day of campaigners. Campaigners in Young Life is the kind of the discipleship, the Bible study segment. So all these people were having this final celebration, and this is going to date me. Some of you have no idea what this show is, but it was the last live showing of the last episode, or the first live showing of the last episode of the series MASH. You guys, okay, some of us <laughs> remember that. Um, Alan Alda, you know, Hawkeye and all that. Um, and, and we had this viewing party, and then afterwards we were going to talk about sex and dating. And those of you who have children in the room, that's as far as we'll go with the verbiage, but some of the content here will be PG-13, but we'll be careful on the verbiage. Um, and what we, it, was, it was an idea about chastity, about saving yourself for marriage, and why the Scripture speaks to that. It's not to, trying to deny you pleasure, but trying to protect you from pain. And I stood up in front of all these people, and you know, I was, again, self-righteous as I could be, and I said, I will never, no matter what the circumstances, I will never give in to that particular temptation until I'm married. 
Um, different words, but that's, that was the effect. Six, actually less than six months, six days into my uh, experience at Hope College, uh, I met this, this young lady, not going to use her name, and none of this is her fault, um, but I met this person, and we, we went on our first date, and we were walking at Collin Park, and it was one of those get-to-know-you dates, right? We'd seen a movie, and we're taking a walk, and so what do you, you know, where do you come from, what do you do, what do you, why are you in school, what's going to be your major, you know, all that, what's your sign? No, we didn't do that. Um, and and I told her, I said, I'm, I'm here and I'm preparing for ministry. And she laughed. And that should have been clue number one for me, but she was so beautiful. I just, you know, so we just continued in our relationship. And four, five, six weeks in, um, the, the, the discussion turned from, you know, we're, we love each other, right? And of course, you're, you're 18, you know everything. Um, I, excuse me, I was 18 and I knew everything. Uh, so we start talking about, and we love each other, and we're committed to each other. We're going to end up married, because of course we know that, um, six weeks into our relationship. And, and, but, but our emotional connection is different than our physical connection. And she broached the subject first about that, that we should take next steps in our physical relationship so that it matches our emotional relationship. And after six months total, um, I had convinced myself that this was the right thing to do. Uh, and I'm going to tell you what some of my process was. First, it was, no, I made a vow. Second, it was, well, I was young way back six months ago um, when I made that vow. And, and then it was, well, you know, I'm talking to some of my friends, and they grew up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church. They probably know more about this than I do. So what do you do in your relationships? And they told me, and it's, boy, that seemed right. It seemed good. And then I got to the point where, you know, God, people used to get married much earlier than they do now. And, you know, God wouldn't expect us to put off these desires and these urges. And, and, and dogs do it. So, um, I mean, that went through my head. And I know how silly that sounds, but watch yourself. Not with this particular thing, but in ways you will, it's, you, you convince yourself, you adjust your beliefs to fit your desired behaviors instead of adjusting, I, I was doing, instead of adjusting my behaviors to fit my beliefs. And so I remember um, deciding that it was right and convincing myself that it was right. And then our relationship started a graveyard spiral. And we, we went from the couple that people like to be around. We were fun. Uh, it was, there was some innocence there to being the, one, the, the couple that argues all the time, off and on, up and down. So after six months, that particular change took place, and it took another year of off and on, arguing, uh, making up, arguing, making up, um, breaking up, back together, breaking up, back together. It got so bad that my friends went to her, to her, and her friends came to me. They had a little meeting about us, and they, they came to me and said, she, she can't do, she can't be with you. She can't say no to you. You have to stop coming around. You have to stop contact. And my friends did the same thing with her. And we, we had that experience um, and realized that, that it was affecting other people other than us, and there's a lot of other stuff that went on in the relationship, so I'll, I'll, but I'll leave that alone. But I will tell you this, that after our friends met with us, she went home, um, and her parents were going out uh, and formal dinner, and uh, her dad forgot his cufflinks and came home and had found her, um, she'd cut her wrists. And so, you know, that says a lot about me, that you, you, get, you get real close with me and you'll try to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> The guilt and the shame that came from that, and I want to, I want to, I want to go one step further. Um, you'd think I'd learn, but I didn't, because I convinced myself it seemed right to me. 
And in different ways, but at two other relationships that were ungodly, not in the same way, but in different ways, it, it was, it, instead of correcting my behavior to fit my beliefs, I continued to justify or to try to, con- to try to convince myself that what my new beliefs were right, because this was my desired behavior. So instead of, well, we were young, so I'm much more mature now, I'm 20. Um, so I wanted to, I, if I would have continued down that road, I never would have married Lynn. My daughter and son-in-law are sitting here, my son who's at home, they wouldn't exist. Lynn would, but she'd be married to someone else. My children would never exist. Um, I wouldn't have been in ministry. Um, I never would have met any of you. My life, there was a way that seemed right to me. And it was a way that led to death. Uh, I tell you this, well, I'll let Doug tell you his story and then we'll get back to any teaching that might come from it. It's not not just if you're overconfident, those things kind of happen. And it doesn't just happen when you're young. Um, So now I get to confess my story. Um, So it was 2004. Um, I'm a young pastor. I've been in the ministry for just a couple years. You know, we're making our life in Iowa, northwest Iowa. And um, now, if you're not familiar with my story, I didn't, um, I didn't grow up in a traditional family. Uh, my parents divorced when I was five. My dad was gone out of the picture. So I did not have a father figure. I didn't understand what it meant to be a dad or to have a dad. Or, well, I didn't see how marriage worked. And so here I am. I'm a young man, you know, five, five years, six years married at that point, just making it up as I go along. I have no confidence. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just winging it. All right, so going to be a good husband, uh, this seems like a good idea. And, okay, i got to be a good dad, so this seems like a good idea. And it seems like a good idea, and I guess um, kind of manifested in a, in a pretty ugly way uh, one evening at the supper table, um, which is what you call it in Iowa. It's not dinner, it's supper. <laughs> Sorry, just an aside. Um, I was trying to be a good dad. I was trying to be the best dad that I knew how and just trying to figure it out. And what it meant to be a good dad was that, you know, you're you're there for your kids. I have this little four-year-old son, and, uh, you know, I've got to help him be a a young man. I've got to grow him up to be a young man. Man, it was heartbreaking to see all those kids up here, and I knew I was going to tell this story. Don't do this. Don't do this. (laughs) Um, What does my son need? need? He needs to know that I love him. He needs to know how to listen to me. you got to listen to, to, to the ones who are in charge of you. Be obedient. And he needs to, be, he needs to grow up strong. I want him to grow up strong and, 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 to, and to be a good kid. And, and so around the supper table that night, uh, my little four-year-old says, um, as we're getting done with, with the meal, um, I look at, at his plate and I notice that he had not eaten his broccoli which makes sense. He's four. <laughs> I'm 51. I don't eat my broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should have yeah. supper together. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was, no. Um, I said, uh, Will, you need, to, you need to finish your broccoli. And he says, no. I'm like, Laura, he needs to finish his broccoli. And she goes, well, talk to him about it then. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, so I encouraged him, eat your broccoli. It's really good for you. You got to eat your broccoli. I don't like it. I don't want to eat it. So I pressed a little more. I, you know, I was 
pressing him to eat his broccoli and he wasn't going to eat it. And then I commanded him to eat his broccoli and he would not eat his broccoli. And then I threatened him about eating his broccoli and punishments that would come and he would still not eat his broccoli. And the thing, this moment, suddenly degraded and I found myself, and I'm horrified, but I found myself with my little boy's jaw in my hand, and I'm trying to force broccoli into his mouth. And it was at that moment that Laura stepped in, and she said, this, this stops now. And I'm, I'm just trying to do my best the way I knew how or didn't know how. She goes, Doug, you're not being a very good father. And the realization just hit me. Like, I wanted to be a good dad. That's what I thought. You know, how do you be a good dad? You, just, you make your kids do good things. And I realized in that moment that, that in my pursuit of being a good dad, the way I understood it, that I had neglected, I, I had given up the image of my father in heaven. Realized I had anger issues and control issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, I got on my knees in front of that guy, that little guy, and I asked him to forgive me. And he's like, yeah, okay, Dad. And he gives me a hug, and we're both crying. And I asked him before the service this morning if I could tell that story. And he goes, oh, okay. I'm like, do you remember that? He goes, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> the grace, grace of God that I... I have a good relationship with my children, not because of me, like, not because I know what I'm doing. It's not always, it's not always cockiness. It's not always arrogance. I don't think I said I was cocky. <laughs> That's what I heard. I was. <laughs> I had, um, I had lost sight of, of what it took to understand how to live life. See, it's the same thing with the bubbles, right? There's this thing outside of us. It's the same thing with the instrument panel in an airplane. It's this thing that's outside of us. We are created beings, which means that there is a holy other who knows what is real, who tells us what is real, who gives us direction and, and sets us free in what it means to be who we are. We don't have to figure it out. We we get to be told. We get to see the facts, the truth, the reality, and it gets put in front of us. And I had lost sight of my instrument panel. I had lost sight of, of, of the truth. But it felt right. It felt like I was going to get some results and have a good kid. It... uh. It boils down to if you trust, you know, the Lord, Scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on, on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. But I want you to hear that again. Trust in the Lord with everything you have and lean not on your own understanding. Um, I'm not trustworthy. I learned that pretty quick. <laughs> that I got it figured out, my brain works pretty good, I can kind of read a room, I kind of know what's going on in most situations. But when it boils right down to it, I am willing to convince myself that something is right that doesn't line. And I'm willing to adjust my beliefs to fit my behavior. So I don't trust God unless I trust him even when it goes against my instinct, or what I want to be true and right and good and noble. I actually had convinced myself that what I was doing was what God wanted for me. 
I wasn't just out building or building a testimony. So do you, do you trust God? Or do you blame God when you're untrustworthy? See, remember Adam and Eve in the garden um, after they messed up and ate the chocolate? <laughs> Some of you remember that. And God came looking and Adam was hiding and, and, and God said to Adam, why, why, why are you hiding? See, the focus now of God is on him. And, and he's ashamed. And so what does he do? He takes the attention of God off of himself and puts it on another. He says, that woman you gave me Peter does it too. After Jesus resurrected, Peter's denied Jesus three times. They're out in the boat and they're fishing and Peter sees Jesus on the shore. So Peter puts his clothes on and jumps in the water. Um, I don't fish naked. I don't know about Peter, but um, <laughs> we need a little break there. Uh, and he swims to shore and, they, and he and Jesus go for a walk. It doesn't say they went for a walk, but we know they went for a walk because of what was happening. So Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I do. Peter, do you really? Peter, do you really? Lord, you know I do. He says, then feed my sheep. But then he starts to talk to him about how difficult life's going to get for Peter. And Peter doesn't like this. So he, see, he looks back and John, the beloved disciple, is following him. And he says, hey, what about him? And Jesus says this, one time, this what's this to you attitude that God had to Peter? He says, if I choose to let him remain until I return, what's that to you? In other words, Peter, deal with yourself. Peter's not trustworthy. He made a vow, I will never, never deny you. And then three times before the rooster crowed, he denied him. Do you trust God even when it goes against your instincts? Who gets to define what's real? The holy other. That's the, the that's creator. The yeah. I mean, do I get, if I get to define what's real, I crush the relationships in my life. I wound people. I hurt people. I pay a great big cost. Mm -hmm. If God gets to tell me what's real, guess who pays the cost? Guess who's already paid the cost? It's okay. It's church. You can give the answer. <laughs> it's Jesus, right? When Jesus is, I put it this way, if Mark 2, the healing of the paralytic, the friends that drop their friend down. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know if that's what the friends wanted, you know, or, or, but he says, your sins are forgiven. Then the, the, the religious people go, well, who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus knows what they're saying and knows what they're thinking. And he says, so that you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to you, young man, pick up your mat and walk. Now he's paralyzed. He gets up, he takes his mat and he walks out of there. Now, we hear that story and we go, oh, that's, that's neat. But see, if I tell you your sins are forgiven, there is no cost to me. But if I say to a paralytic, get up and walk, and they don't, I look foolish. But for Jesus to say, get up and walk, it's a snap of his finger. But for him to say your sins are forgiven cost him his life. And you know why he gave his life? Because there is a way that seems right to people, but this way will lead to death. See, the passage I read in Romans, it says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they began to worship created things instead of the creator. When I was in that relationship in, in, in college and then another one and then another one, uh, the only godly relationship I've ever been in is with my wife. 
And I'm, she was grace to me. I told her immediately upon our dating my past, and she immediately forgave me. I mean, she is grace to me. But the, I lost my train. And it was good. I would have died, or I would have destroyed, or I would have harmed, because I worshiped earthly things. Not her, no, me. It's idolatry. When there's a way that seems right to me, but it's not the way that seems right to God, I'm worshiping something created. So here's my question. If you are a created being, who knows better, the created being or the creator? It seems obvious in our heads that the one who made you knows what makes your life work. And the one who's made should ask the one who made it, what's best for me? There's a way that seems right. You've seen it. You look in culture. You look, how could you? You know better. What are you thinking? But there are others that can look at me and say, how could you know? What are you thinking? Because it's easy for me to see the fault in another, but it's hard for me to see the fault in me. And it's kind of stupid for two preachers to stand up and show, talk about almost violent act with a child and immorality in my past. But the scripture says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right to God. And that is to confess your sins to one another, to share your story with one another, to realize that you're not trustworthy and to let people know that you're not trustworthy so that even if I tell you something that you test it here because these are your bubbles, these are your instruments, and they're always right, even when I'm not. I got one more little thing to end with, but Doug, anything you want to add at the end here? Preach it, brother. (laughs) This can sound like an arrogant statement, and I understand that. But I'm going to say it, and I hope it gnaws at you. If you don't believe what we're telling you, if you don't believe that this is always trustworthy and you're not, then your life will prove us right. See how arrogant that sounds? Because our lives proved us right. It is wholly trustworthy, completely trustworthy. God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-Y and H-O-L-Y. He's holy and he's holy other. You get your identity, you get your map, you get your instruments, you get your stuff from something other than you. When you rely on something that is you and not other than you, you'll die. It will destroy. It will kill. It will, in your life, even in the end, will prove this right. And our desire, our hope, our prayer for you is that you're always poking, that you're always digging, that you're looking to see if there's a sinkhole under this beautiful house that you just built, this life, this foundation that you put it on. Is it on solid rock? Or when you dig deep enough, is it just a great big void? And the way you find out if you're building on what's good and right, noble, excellent, praiseworthy, and trustworthy 
is does, do your behaviors and thoughts line up with Scripture, or do you try to do gymnastics in Scripture to make them line up with what you believe and what you, or what you behave, how you behave? So we're not kicking off a new sermon series. We're telling you what we've been doing for the last five years, what we're going to continue to do as long as the Lord has us here. We're going to continue to preach the whole gospel of God. We're going to administer the, 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 the ministry of reconciliation, and we're going to poke and dig because we know that God is trustworthy and, and to that we are not. You, and to encourage you to do that, to seek that, to, to, to grab God's word and say, show me, Father. When you get into a, a time of prayer, say, God, speak. Tell me what is true. That's why we come together, to, together as, a, as a body of believers, so that we've got a bunch of folks that we have life with who know us, who are trustworthy, who, who know this so well and seek God with all their hearts. We can come to them and we can say to them, help me understand, help me be better, show me, be, be an instrument for me to read so I can have a life that, that, that breathes, that lives, that actually goes somewhere. These are the gifts we give each other. This is what it means to be church. Amen. Your tummies are grumbling. Cool thing is you don't have to go far for food because we're going to feed you. Um, at great expense, we're going to make sure that you have a chance to eat and play. So let me pray. We have one more song. If you can stay for the one more song, we'll stand up. We'll praise God. The benediction won't be a second sermon. It'll just be a bless you and keep you, and we'll pray for the meal, and we'll send you out to eat. Let's pray together. Lord, give us courage to be honest. Give us courage to look within ourselves and see that we're not trustworthy. Give us courage to tell those other believers that we're not trustworthy, to confess our shortcomings to each other. And Lord, give us the courage to ask you to forgive us, to repent of our wrongdoing, and to receive that forgiveness and not live in the shame or the regret, but to move forward trusting you as our bubbles, as our instrument, as our author of life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Lord, bless the food that we're about to receive, not just to our bodies, but to the fellowship of believers. We ask you, Lord, to join us in conversation, to be blessed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. That's a look on God's face, a look of adoration. Smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.